0: Uh, the evidence is so powerful for the reality of near-death experiences that you would think that this would be a huge focus of society. Well, one of the major answers to that is, unfortunately, uh, research tends to follow the money. Obviously, I've done all my research unfunded because I haven't had any financial support, and that's true of the great majority of near-death experience researchers. So uh, until society basically insists that there needs to be more research in these kind of non-ordinary and yet highly documented and highly evidential non-ordinary experiences, people probably aren't going to do that.
1: Hello, my name is Donald, and if you're watching this, you are already dead. This is Worldview and at Worldview we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've liked our content so far and enjoyed it, please consider liking this video, subscribing and donating on Patreon. Today we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey Long. The doctor is a researcher into the phenomenon of near-death experiences and the author behind the New York Times bestseller Evidence of the Afterlife, The Science of Near-Death Experiences. In 1998, he founded the Near-Deaf Experiences Research Foundation, which is concerned with documenting these events. Doctor, welcome to the show.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Donald. We have a lot to talk about.
1: Great. Um, so, Doctor, just for some background, can you tell us your area of expertise? What did your education focus on and what did you add to your skills over this course of period?
0: Sure. I'm a physician medical doctor. My medical specialty is radiation oncology, which is the use of radiation to treat cancer. A little over 20 years ago, however, I founded the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, a website devoted to people globally sharing their near-death experiences and posting them back up. Very detailed survey is part of that website. Over that 20 years, we've accumulated 3,500 near-death experiences. And, Donald, that's by far the largest collection of near-death experiences publicly accessible in the world, and it's been literally a goldmine for doing research of near-death experiences.
1: So what, did you, what got you into this field? Why did you get into near-death experiences? Sure. About a
0: quarter century ago, I was, and this is long enough ago, we, we didn't have um, medical journals online, so we had to go to the library and actually get out the journals and go through them manually. So I was actually going through a manual, well, it was the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of the world's leading medical journals, flipping through it, looking for a cancer-related article. I was in my training at that time. Quite by accident, I found an article that had in the title near-death experience, and I'd never heard of that before. So as soon as I read that, I, I was puzzled. Nothing in my medical training had taught me what that would mean. I mean, you're either dead or alive and what's this near-death stuff. So I stopped, read the article and was immediately fascinated. I mean, here was a a physician, a cardiologist talking about near-death experiences in his research that were strikingly similar no matter where in the world they happened. So that really got my attention. And it was several years later, I had a college friend visiting me and his wife over dinner, shared her remarkably detailed near-death experience. And that happened while she was under anesthesia, she coded her heart stopped while she was under general anesthesia and she had a remarkable near-death experience and she didn't even know what it was. So I told her I'd read about that a couple of years ago, but being a doctor, I knew if your heart stops, you can't have any lucid organized experience while you're under general anesthesia. You can't have any kind of organized memory at that time. So this was medically doubly inexplicable for her to share what she was describing. It seemed impossible. So that got my interest up, and I simply wanted to know the truth about near-death experiences. That ultimately led to me setting up the website, surveying, well, at this point now, thousands of people, and coming unequivocally to the answer of that core question, are near-death experiences real? Well, in a word, real. No question about it now, based on that mountain of evidence.
1: Can you tell us a bit about those the, the evidence and some stories that you found? Sure. Um, about 10 to
0: 20% of the time when you have a close rush with death you'll you'll have a near death experience about 80 or 90% of the time you won't. Very quickly as I started uh, accumulating near death experience accounts uh, I realized that there were many of them that were absolutely remarkable. Now no two near death experiences are the same but when you study as many as I have, and other researchers that have studied that many, you see a very consistent pattern of elements, or if you will, characteristics, what happens during near-death experiences, typically observed and typically in a consistent order. Now, with regard to one of the more remarkable near-death experiences I've encountered, i.e. I, I did an interview with Vicky. Vicki was born totally blind. To Vicki, vision, seeing things, was unknown and unknowable. And yet, when she was involved in a car wreck, uh, she wasn't driving, I might add, she was a singer at a bar, and, and unfortunately, an, ine- an inebriated patron tried to get her home and crashed. The First time she had vision was when she, her consciousness was above her body during her near-death experience. She, she saw her body on the gurney. She didn't even know who that was, because again, vision was unknown to her. It was only when she correlated her newfound sense of seeing things with the feel of her long hair and what she had only known by the sense of touch, a ring that her father had given her, she suddenly realized that's me down there. Vicki went on to have a remarkably detailed near-death experience, uh, extremely detailed in terms of visual content. Uh, and of course, that was the last time she had vision like that either. So that was again, a vivid reminder to me of the reality of near-death experiences. For somebody born totally blind to have that detailed of a vision absolutely no other medical explanation. And I might add, Vicki's vision during her near-death experience is what many people that have, I'll call it NDEs for short have, that is so-called 360 degree vision. She was simultaneously aware of vision in front of her, behind her, right, left, up, down, all processing it simultaneously. And uh, even when I told Vicki, hey, that's incredible because those of us worldwide that have vision only have a so-called pie-shaped visual field because of the location of our eyes in our head, and Vicky literally laughed and said that that can't be true because don't forget her whole life experience with vision was that 360-degree vision and not a vision so familiar to us in our conventional earthly lives.
1: And if I remember correctly, there's also a story in a hospital where someone um, uh, received a near-death experience. We could remember what his parents or what the nurse was talking about while he was dead. Can you also oh, tell can, that story?
0: Yeah. We have a lot of those types of accounts. I mean, literally scores and scores of accounts that occurred. Are you talking about uh, something during an operation yeah. or something? Yeah. We have just like that very first near death experience occurred. We have literally scores and scores of these types of experiences where again, they're under anesthesia. And of course, they carefully monitor the heart while you're under anesthesia. So when you code, when your heart stops, goes flat, they know that, and that's very well documented. And Of course, that then precipitates a near-death experience. Typically, the majority have what's called an out-of-body experience, consciousness, generally going above the body from that vantage point, they can see the frantic actions of the surgical and anesthesia team trying to find out what went wrong and trying desperately to bring them back to life. Uh, I can tell you when that happens in the real world as a physician, I've, I've, you know, I've seen that, I'm aware of that, it's not like Hollywood. It's frantic, there's panic, the crash cart doesn't magically appear outside the door. Mm. There may be, I dare say, unprofessional behavior, <clears throat> it's usually the doctor. So this is what they describe is grippingly real and, and real-world heart-stopping during, a, during an anesthetic procedure that obviously wasn't expected. So By the scores and scores, we have people whose consciousness above, describes the reality of that event, uh, describes the racket that the heart monitor, EKG monitor makes when it goes flat. Boy, is that a loud alarm. But not at all unusual for them to have their consciousness then leave from above their body, leave the operating room. And for they may go, I believe I recall the one that you remember, Donald. That was one where they went to the waiting room and very precisely recalled Uh, their parents at that time, I believe it was, uh, their trouble with the vending machine, their conversations. Uh, When they recovered from what nearly killed them, they were able to verify in exquisite detail that what they saw, what they heard was absolutely real. We had another similar such code, heart stop during general anesthesia. Their consciousness left their operating room theater and went down to the hospital cafeteria. There their, their family members were gathered unaware of that crisis in a different part of the hospital, and from that vantage point over their family members in the cafeteria, vividly heard and uh, saw what they were doing at that point in time. And again, when they recovered from that close brush with death, uh, exquisitely detailed, accurate recollection of what they saw and heard verified down the finest details. So again, some of the most powerful evidence for the reality of near-death experience and globally, that there's more to consciousness in our human brain than we ever thought. So there are now, given the huge number of these types of near-death experiences that me and other researchers have found, uh, there's no question they're real. In fact, it's it's actually quite rare in my, it's relatively rare, at least in my experience, that when people have that out-of-body experience and see ongoing earthly events, that what they see or hear is an error virtually all the time. It is accurate, no matter whether they're close to their physical body or geographically, far beyond their physical body, far beyond any possible physical sensory awareness. If they're seeing it and hearing it while they have a near-death experience, it's almost certainly going to later be verified as real.
1: So perhaps just for our viewers, technically, what is a near-death experience? Perhaps we should just clarify that.
0: Sure. Uh, Now, as the near-death experience term implies, you're near-death. In other words, you're so physically compromised that you're unconscious or maybe clinically dead, as in the examples we gave with an absent heartbeat. So, at that point in time, by the very dictionary definition of unconscious, you, you shouldn't remember anything. And yet, by the thousands, near death experiencers do have a lucid, organized memory at that time. So, the term experience as part of a near death experience means at that time they're unconscious or clinically dead, they have that consistently observed experience. And again, while no two near-death experiences are the same, uh, by the time you study a large number, you see those characteristics over and over. We talked about that out-of-body experience, consciousness rising above that unconscious or clinically dead body, vivid awareness of what's going on around earthly events. They may pass into or through a tunnel, variably described often at the end of the tunnel. There's a light often described as a mystical, beautiful, one near-death experiencer said it was like a million times a million suns, but essentially never hurts the eyes. At this point, they're in a non-earthly realm, Uh, almost invariably. So they say time doesn't exist in this realm, or is at least radically different. Communication is essentially always, the best English word is telepathic, sharing of thoughts, and yet it goes far beyond that. It's sharing of concepts uh, with complete unambiguous, uh, unambiguous clarity, unlike any earthly conversations we've ever had. They may be in a realm where there's landscapes, buildings, they may encounter deceased loved ones. These are joyous reunions, they can be both people and pets. Um, even if the person died of a disfiguring, chronic illness, essentially, always their picture perfect health and near death experience. Uh,
1: generally, generally, your research shows that it's um, a very positive experience. So, for example, a person who was in pain, suddenly that pain disappears.
0: Oh, and, and that's a really good point. At the time consciousness separates from the body, it's uncommon to rare that they have that sensation of pain during the progressive elements of a near-death experience, especially when they get into that unearthly realm. Uh, I cannot recall any time that they've been in pain um, in, in any physical sense. They're literally... Donald, not part of their physical body at that point in time. So they're not sensing anything that their physical body did, even though they literally were on death's door at the time they, they started their near death experience. So they go on, they may encounter a part or all of their prior life in what's called a life review. Um, they you see landscapes, beautiful, unearthly, they may describe colors that are beautiful beyond anything on Earth. Music has been described, again, beautiful beyond anything that they say could possibly exist. Um, And then at the end of their experience, they may have to make most of the people go back to their physical body involuntarily and others without a choice. A minority of people at the end of their near-death experience have a choice. Now check this out, even though they've lived on their earthly life years or decades, the great majority of people in a near-death experience do not want to return to their earthly body. They want to stay in this realm where they feel peace and love, two of the most common words used as descriptors of what's going on. Also I might add in addition to feeling that powerful intense sense of love and connection, they also have a very strong sense over and over described that they feel this unearthly realm is their real home. This is where they belong and they very quickly uh, become aware that their earthly experience, even though that was all of their prior life, isn't their real home anymore. So the great majority of people having a near-death experience will often argue, it very forcefully at times, that they don't want to return to their earthly body. But when they ultimately do make that decision, boom, they're back in their earthly body. And then when they regain their consciousness and have the ability to share what happened, they've had a near-death experience to share with people.
1: So, Dr. um how has the reaction been to your research? Because I can imagine in your, lo- in your field with doctors, they can perhaps be not so um, lenient in accepting this um, evidence. How has the general reaction been?
0: Yeah, and that's a really good point. In, in Researching near-death experiences is not at all conventional for physicians. Literally, Donald, for the first oh, 8 to 10 years that I was doing the research and ran the re- website, I was so concerned about that, that my name on the whole website was Dr. Jeff. Nobody could track who it was or that I was behind this research project. However, when I published my New York Times bestselling book Evidence of the Afterlife, well, boom, instantly everybody knew that I was doing that. I was on a lot of national TV, a huge number of media events. So the physicians that I work with very quickly sort of embraced that, if you will, success of, of getting that research out. Anybody that read my book or heard any of my comments realized very quickly that the evidence was so powerful that I presented in my book for the reality of near-death experience and its consistent message of an afterlife. Nobody really argued with me. (laughs) Uh, I had a pretty good reputation in tumor boards. I I, I was fairly good at debate. And so I think everybody realized, given the, the remarkable success I was having, very unexpected, I might add. Uh, Coupled with the fact that the evidence was that powerful, there was essentially no doctors I worked with that really sat down and said, geez, I think you got it wrong, because, well, you'd have to say why, and and they couldn't. In the media events following that, Donald, the main opponents of my research were not uh, opposed to it because of anything scientific, any uh, quibbling with the particular evidence I had. It was simply that their belief system was that they were atheists and because there could not be a god or an afterlife or survival of consciousness then obviously i was wrong and remarkably that was the foundation with which they would come at debating my work and as you might imagine given all that i've never lost a debate regarding the evidentiality of my of uh, my research for near death experiences so.
1: And what I love about, or what I found very interesting in your book is you also talk about near-death experiences, for example, I believe in like Asia or the Middle East. And the conclusion you reach is there's no real heaven for one type of person. It's, it's available for everyone. It's, am I true in that statement?
0: You're probably more correct than you even know, Donald. In my book from quite a while ago, we, we published what we called uh, the cross-cultural uh, investigation of near-death experiences. Well, my, haven't things changed over the years since I published my first book? We now have over, way over 500 near-death experiences from all around the world. Uh, the way we've been able to do that, is we have portions of the website, the nderf.org website, the research website, have been translated remarkably into over 30 different languages, including the survey as part of that uh, subsection of the nderf website. So literally, anybody on, almost anybody in the world was going to be able to find a portion of that website and the survey in their native language. So we've been able to conduct by far the largest cross-cultural study of near-death experience ever. And certainly, exactly as you said, it is striking how similar near-death experiences are worldwide. Now, as a researcher, I knew the, the sternest test of the cross-cultural similarity of near-death experiences would be non-Western near-death experiences. Those are in countries that have substantially different cultures than typical Western countries. Uh, Just within the last few weeks, I've updated my investigation of non-Western near-death experiences. We have, wow, we must have 80 or 90 at least at this point posted on the website. Anybody on the world can can take a look at the posted non-Western near-death experiences and see exactly what I found that they're strikingly similar. The content is strikingly similar wherever on the planet you are, whether you're a typical Western country or from a non-Western country. May I add, I've actually published two articles in a uh, peer-reviewed scholarly journal with a colleague I have in Iran looking at Iranian near-death experiences. And once again, our our conclusion based on that study is that near-death experiences are strikingly the same. So Donald, Amazingly, it doesn't seem to make any difference, whether you're, say, a Muslim in Egypt or a Hindu in India or a Christian in the United States, anywhere on the planet that you have a near-death experience, the content is going to be strikingly similar, regardless of what your religious or cultural pre-existing background may have been.
1: So um, you mentioned that you had acquired a blowback from atheists. Let's uh, take the main argument. And for example, they would say, oh, but I mean, this was falsified, or it's just coincidence. What, what is your typical reply to that?
0: Okay, uh, good gosh, that would be a heroic effort for over 3,500 people to falsify their accounts. And uh, certainly, let's not forget the four or 5,000 other accounts of near-death experiences that have been published by other researchers and other studies. So even atheists, even the, the Uh, most ridiculous skeptics of near-death experience have given up. They're falsified. They're too similar from too many researchers, from too many we may be up to, if not exceeding, 10,000 near-death experiences that have been evaluated. So they aren't falsified. These come from people from all walks of life. They come from doctors, physicians, clergy, scientists. We've had atheists share their near-death experience. Obviously, the great, great majority of people that are atheists, when they have their near-death experience, are no longer atheists many years later when they share their near-death experience. So that's been a thoroughly refuted concern of skeptics that these things are falsified. So it's really pretty much the of course for the an early argument was well they're just anecdotal. It, you have to you don't feel like saying dudes we have three thousand five hundred at what point do you no longer call them anecdotal plus, you know, four or 5,000 more from other researchers. So this is not anecdotal anymore. And may I add, while we're on the topic, there's way over 200 articles that have been published in peer reviewed scholarly literature about near-death experiences. These, Donald, are some of the leading medical and scientific journals in the world that have published about near-death experiences. So by consensus of scholarly literature, there's no question these things happen. There's no question that no reasonable explanation, physiological, cultural, or psychological, has ever been brought forward to explain all that we're talking
1: about. So, Doctor, can you just briefly give us the characteristics of a near-death experience? So, what what is the typical um, symptoms that you experience? Like that combines everyone, like from Asia to Egypt to America. What are the common symptoms you experience?
0: Yeah. Well, we actually talked about that earlier. The out-of-body experience happens when you see ongoing earthly events, about 45% describe that. And then, as we discussed earlier, you can pass into or through a tunnel variably described. Recall there's a, often a light at the end of that tunnel, and then you're in an unearthly realm. Some people call it a heavenly realm. Uh, you don't, I don't want to use perjurative terminology, but it is certainly highly unearthly. Uh, certainly in that realm, uh, time doesn't exist the way we know it now. It's either doesn't exist at all, or at least felt to be radically different. Uh, you have that telepathic communication. You have non-physical motion. It's not like here we are on, are on Earth, where you you have to move physically from one direction to another. Uh, movement seems to be well non-physical in that realm. Uh, it's, it's a it, and that's what's so difficult for people, I think, to understand these unearthly realms and near-death experience. Heck, I went through a learning curve on that too, but it is not like a physically separate, independent physical existence like we know on Earth. It's radically existence in all of its characteristics in terms of, of time attributes. Um, it seems to be a realm where, you know, if you will, it's it's sort of energy based as opposed to physical based, as the closest analogy that I can come to in terms of its difference. Vision, as we've described, can be different there. Um, so it's it's a very, very different realm. These are sort of the, uh, again, to get back to the characteristics, um, again, you can have that life review, review a portion or even all of your prior life. Um, vision is, is typically non-ordinary. You have those over, overwhelming emotions. That's probably one of the most commonly described things They have. In fact, the two most common words, we actually had a, a person that did a very careful search of the two most common descriptive words in in five, over 500 near-death experiences posted on the uh, NDRF website, the two most common words that popped up and that study's been published are light and love. So you kind of immediately realize that that's something uh, unearthly in terms of that characteristics. I mean, goodness gracious, in, in this area of the world down here, you don't seem, see love as being one of the most common descriptors of our day-to-day
1: experiences um so I don't know if you've ever read the last symbol by Dan Brown but there's a study that's done and it's a fiction book but it's a very interesting study where they have a person who's near close to death they weigh him and the moment he dies his weight suddenly drops and the argument they make is that there's some sort of metaphysical component to each person a soul that leaves your body upon death do you think that's what happens here? There's some sort of metaphysical component to each person that lives on beyond death. That explains this phenomenon you're, you have um, um, researched.
0: Uh, many years ago, there was a, a thought that perhaps at the moment of death, there is a measurable drop in person's weight that is unexplicable. Um, Unfortunately, that's not true. That's basically an urban legend. There's actually a nice Wikipedia article on that that summarizes all the literature on that. But at this point in time, we're very clear from, and by the way, those older studies that occurred in the early 1900s, probably that's attributable to evaporation of the body, water leaving the body after they dies. Best guess we have now for those, uh, how that belief got started all those decades ago. But currently, Uh, There's no scholarly belief that you instantaneously lose any measurable weight at all at the moment of death. So that's uh, that's that thinking from prior studies
1: is is no longer felt to be valid. And yeah, uh, you, you talked about atheists. But um, I think in your book, you also discuss that there's also been some blowback from nurses and doctors who don't really want to tell these stories. They don't want to, because nurses, for example, have a tendency to believe it's demonic. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Um, You know, actually, Donald, uh, nurses tend to be more receptive to patients death experiences than
1: doctors. uh, Sorry, I I believe it's nuns. I might be confused. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah.
0: Um, You know, those that have very strong religious beliefs, especially if their identity is tied up in that, that could be a problem. Yeah, we've had um, nuns, you know, and other religious uh, affiliated people telling people after their near-death experience that can't possibly be real, it's of the devil. Now, interestingly, Donald, in recent years, I mean, like even a recent five to 10 years, we're seeing much, much less of that. Near-death experiences are so widely known that even atheists, the the, uh, members of the clergy, members of religious groups, they get that, and a very powerful line of evidence for those that are conventionally religious are people that have had near-death experiences in their congregation. Heck, these aren't rare. A Gallup poll published in 1982, estimated perhaps 5% of the United States adult population had a near-death experience at some point in their life. So as you can imagine, any good-sized congregation is probably going to have one or perhaps even a few people that have had a near death experience and that's certainly powerfully persuasive. So thank goodness we're out of that era of many decades ago where the near death experience was so unknown, so mysterious and feared by some people. We're now having people that, that have near death experiences in hospitals. People understand they had a near death experience and actually nowadays they're quite fascinated a lot of the time. Uh, the, I've, I've talked to a lot of churches, there's a lot more acceptance of the, and certainly pretty much every church that is aware of scientific thinking and embraces that, knows that near-death experiences really happen. And uh, so we, we don't really have that, that blowback that we used to have decades ago from either religious organizations or, thank goodness, healthcare professionals.
1: Why, why do you believe this, is, this hasn't gotten more traction? Because I believe yeah. this is such a powerful issue that a lot of people care about. I feel like this would be almost like world news. Why, why hasn't this really gotten more traction?
0: Yeah, That's a really good question, Donald. Um, I've heard that over and over from other people I've talked to. Uh, uh, the evidence is so powerful for the reality of near-death experiences that you would think that this would be a huge focus of society. Well, one of the major answers to that is, unfortunately, Uh, research tends to follow the money. Obviously, I've done all my research unfunded because I haven't had any financial support. And that's true of the great majority of near-death experience researchers. So uh, until society basically insists that there needs to be more research in these kind of non-ordinary and yet highly documented, highly evidential, non-ordinary experiences, people probably aren't going to do that. And let's not forget the people, at least in America, I should probably address, that, that at the federal level that control the purse strings of grant money are going to predominantly be materialists, predominantly be people that uh, simply, most of them don't even know about near-death experience or the evidence behind it. And so as a result of that, it's, it's extremely difficult, if not poss- impossible, to get funding. And of course, if you're starting out as a scientist, even if you're interested in this, you're going to have some wise old colleague take you aside and say, hey, if you go down that path for research, you're not going to get grants. You're probably not going to get tenure. If you value your academic career, you really need to stick with the mainstream, get that grant money, become recognized by your peers as being an expert in this particular field. And uh, you know, unfortunately, that's kept a lot of people who would otherwise be very interested and very talented and, and could potentially help expand our knowledge even further about near-death experience, um, it's a blockade. I I mean, I had to be a physician that had the guts to go and do this and uh, fund it myself, which by the way, over the years has been fairly substantial uh, to bring it forward. I hope that changes. Um, Shoot, Donald, you know, as time goes on, people are gonna realize there's over 20 different skeptical explanations of near-death experience. Now you might say, well, good gosh, why are there so many floating around? And the answer is simple. There's no one or several skeptical explanations that explain near-death experience, even parts of it, let alone the totality of what's observed in near-death experiences. So we keep having these materialists, atheists, or what have you bring up a new explanation every year to makes a splash in the media. But as you can imagine, it doesn't come close to explaining what's going on here. So it's, uh, it, it's probably gonna be a grassroots thing where people sort of from the public Come up and and start asking their congressmen, asking people that can really make a difference in funding, why aren't we looking at this? I mean, heck, we had that very recently in America with UFOs. It took a congressman to insist the government release their information about UFOs. That report just came out and all of a sudden everybody's all abuzz about that and almost certainly there's going to be real funding into uh, ufology here in the near future just because America finally released its UFO data that the government had been collecting, and admitted quite honestly, there's a vast number of these reports that we have no explanation for, and you know that phenomenon could happen with uh, that path could happen with near deaf experiences of research too.
1: Yeah, it was funny when they released uh, UFO research and in, in the middle of COVID, so people were like, okay. they for years they waited for it. now. Now it was released in COVID, they were like, we have b- bigger problems at the moment. But, yeah. yeah, doctor, this has been a very interesting conversation. Um, I want to give you one last opportunity to add, blog, or say anything that you want to.
0: Oh, yeah, I appreciate a Great interview here with a lot of great questions. Uh, I would encourage anybody that wants to read more near death experiences. It's a public service website. We don't have anything for sale. We actually don't solicit donations. So it's org. That's the Near Death Experience Research Foundation website. Feel free to peruse by far the largest near-death experience website in the world right there, and certainly if you've ever had a near-death experience, there is a survey that you can complete. It's very long, so thanks in advance to anybody that takes that on. We learn, even after 3,500 near-death experiences, we continue to learn. What we don't know about near-death experience, I firmly believe what we don't know far outweighs what we do know, so every contribution is valuable and helps us to learn more about this remarkable phenomenon.
1: Death experiences. Well, thank you so much for your time, Doctor. My name is Donald. This has been Worldview.